Daniel chapter 1, hear the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the house of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who were of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, When the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The fiery furnace, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel in the lion's den. These are phrases that have come down to us in English, and they all come from this book that we're about to begin studying today. And many people know these expressions without even knowing anything about this book. So much of an impact has this book had on our culture and on the English language. It's a book that delights little children with its thrilling stories. And if anybody spent any time at all in Sunday school while growing up, they know these stories. It also encourages people of all ages, believers of all ages, because of its inspiring tales of faithfulness. And it also confounds the greatest Old Testament scholars 
because of some of its bizarre aspects, uh, the, the two different languages it uses, all of a sudden it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic for no apparent reason, and then it switches back chapters later from Aramaic back to Hebrew, and there's still no real clear explanation of why. It puts together two different genres. It puts together the genre of history in the first six chapters, and then it continues with the genre of prophecy after that. But to make matters more complicated, it's a type of prophecy that is usually called apocalyptic, which contains strange images and visions. But in spite of its peculiarities, this book is actually very clear. And in fact, apocalyptic literature is clear in its main thrust in what it's really driving at. And this is it. I'm going to give it to you right now. This is what Daniel is all about. God is in control, so be faithful no matter what happens. The stories teach that lesson, and the apocalyptic, the prophetical part teaches that lesson as well. God is in control, and so if you are a believer, be faithful no matter what happens. I have heard a number of people talk about what they think is going to happen in the future in the United States. And I have heard people predicting that persecution will be coming on Christians in the United States. And that may be true. I don't know. That prediction may be true. Already we are seeing some, some pressure to conform to trendy sexual ideologies and some mild punishment by vilification or sometimes by exclusion. We're seeing that sort of pressure brought upon us. But that pales in comparison to what has happened throughout history and what is happening today to our brothers and sisters around the world who confess the name of Christ. They are under terrible persecution and extreme pressure to conform to the reigning ideologies of wherever that might be. B. In other words, in other words, the book of Daniel reminds us that this question of persecution of believers is nothing new. It's nothing new. It's always happened, but it's new for every generation, isn't it? Every new generation needs to learn how to deal with it, why this, which is why this book is always relevant, because it teaches each succeeding generation of believers how to stand in their day facing whatever they have to face. Now, this is set in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, verse 1. That's actually about 2,600 years ago. It's 605 B.C. And in 605 B.C., the uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the son of the founder of the new Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar's father had conquered Assyria and reestablished the Babylonian Empire. But in 605 BC, his father died. And so he rushed back uh, from his campaigns, his military campaigns, he rushed back to Babylon and he became the king of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. And the other superpower of the day, which was waning in its, its uh, power, was Egypt. And Egypt at that time controlled the Promised Land, controlled Judea. And so one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar did is he pushed the Egyptians out of Judea and he wrested control of that area from the Egyptians. Now, a little backstory, the Egyptians, they had installed on the throne of Judah the one that they wanted. 
they installed Jehoiakim. So he was a puppet of the king of Egypt. So here we have Nebuchadnezzar coming in, pushing out the Egyptians, and the Egyptian puppet is on the throne. And so it says here what God did. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Who gave the king of Judah into the hand of Babylon? The Lord did. Now pay attention to that because all through this, this, uh, this book, we're going to find about the things that the Lord did. And here, the Lord did this. He gave his own king, as it were, into the hands of the king of Babylon. Now, this is exactly what they should have expected to happen. Because this is what Jeremiah had been preaching. This is what Zephaniah had been preaching. This is what Habakkuk had been preaching. And so this is not uh, anything unexpected. This is what the prophets had said would happen if the people turned away from the Lord. He would give them into the hands of the Babylonians. And here is what, how he did it uh, in 605 B.C. Now, it says also that God gave into his hands some of the vessels. These are the sacred articles of the temple, vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And place the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, when, when the writer of this, this book, Daniel, which may have been Daniel himself, when he talks about the true God, he calls him the God. And that's distinguished from his God, which is Nebuchadnezzar's God, the gods of the Babylonians. So he took sacred vessels that God gave into his hands, and he put them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and he put them in the house of his gods. Now, remember that. Because these vessels are going to play an important role in an event that happens in the life of the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. So keep that in mind, that these vessels are now in the house of the treasury of the gods of Babylon. And then Nebuchadnezzar, as was the custom, the king commanded Ashpenaz, verse 3, his chief eunuch. And by the way, that is not necessarily a eunuch. It's his chief official to bring some of the people of Israel, both the royal family and the nobility, these youths, the, the smartest, the best-looking youths of the, the noble families, and to train them in all the culture of the Babylonians. At the end of verse 4, it says, to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are not a different group. Those are the same, the Babylonians. And there's, there's some interesting play with the names here. It says here that he took them and he put them, these vessels, in the house. He took them to the land of Shinar. Shinar is also the land of Babylon. But here, the writer is using this ancient name, and he's using this name because this word Shinar, we should remember this if we've read Genesis, Shinar is where the the Tower of Babel was built. And so the land of Shinar was associated with opposition to God. And so the the author is using some different names, Babylon, Shinar, uh, Chaldeans, and he's using them in a way to say, to signal that that the vessels of God are now in the hands of those who are opposed to God. It is in the temple of their gods, not the God. But these youths are, are going to be strategically placed for two reasons, for two reasons. These youths have become, one, they have become hostages, hostages. So now, if the king of Judea wants to do anything against Babylon, who is he putting at risk? 
And this was a common thing, hostage-taking in the day. Take, take hostage of the leading families so they're, they're not going to go against you. So one, they're hostages, but two, they're going to be converted, if possible, into good Babylonians. They're going to be indoctrinated into the culture, the language, the literature, the religion of Babylon, of the Chaldeans. And so not only will they be hostages, but, but if there is some sort of conflict, on whose side will they be? If they're converted properly, they will be on the side of the Babylonians to uh, represent the Babylonians against their own people. So this is a very astute, astute political move. So they're to be trained, and they're also to be given a special diet. Look at verse 5. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. So this is food from his table. They were to be educated for three years. At the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So they were going to have a final exam before the king, and he was going to test them after three years of training. And so the training begins in verse 6. And in verse 6, what's the very first thing to do? The very first thing to do is erase references to the God in the names of these four young people, probably teenagers. And uh, all of their names, Daniel... Hananiah, Shadrach, I'm sorry, Mishael, and Azariah have some sort of allusion or reference to the name of the true God. And so they take away those names that have some sort of reference to the true God, and they give them new names, Belteshazzar, and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there are different ideas about what these names means, but it looks like they have reference to the new gods. These have reference to the the gods of the Babylonians. So that's the first thing, to change their identity, to change their name. So re-educate them, change their names, give them new food to eat. But then that's where a problem comes up. They really couldn't do much about their name change. They couldn't do much about anything about the fact that they were enrolled in this program. But Daniel drew a line. Verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And here the conflict begins. And you know how a good story goes, right? We've just seen the setting, and now the conflict comes in. And now the conflict will develop, and then we'll see the resolution of this conflict. Now, this is interesting, and there are a number of reasons that people have proposed about why he didn't want to eat the king's food. Well, one, they may have eaten things that that were not on the Jewish diet. For example, pork. And so that would not be kosher for Daniel and his friends to eat that. So they may have eaten, uh, the king may have eaten forbidden meats, but there was no restriction of wine. So it's not, that can't be the only explanation. Another explanation is that the food that was offered to the king was probably first offered in sacrifice to the gods. That was another possibility, but probably much or all of the food had some reference to the gods. And so there was no way to avoid that completely. There may have been a a third reason, and it's a simpler one in a sense. Notice that the food is described as the food that the king ate, and the wine is described as the, the wine that the king drank. This is the king's table. This is the king's food. And so to eat and to drink with the king is to be allied with the king, to be identified with the king, to be in fellowship with the king, to be one of the king's men. And apparently for that reason, Daniel said, no, I'm not going to eat the food. You can call me whatever name you want to call me. You can enroll me in whatever 
program you want to enroll me. I don't have any choice about that. But I'm not going to defile myself by being identified as one of the king's men, eating from the king's table. That's going too far. Now, this is the first indication that these four boys, if we can call them that, four teenagers, were not going to be easy converts, were they? They were going to put up some resistance to this new indoctrination. And the education, this is what we should take heart if we're parents, the education that they had received at home was sufficient for them to resist the indoctrination when they went off to the pagan university. You see, they were probably 14, 15, 16, but they had been educated at home, and they knew the truth. And so there were things they couldn't control, but they could control where they stood and with whom they were allied and what they believed. And they stuck to their guns, and they refused to be defiled because their faith was standing firm, even though they were young people and even though there was great pressure by the academics that was brought upon them to conform. So Daniel, he didn't, he didn't go on a hunger strike. He, he already is showing himself to be rather astute. So he goes to the, the head guy. He goes to the chief official, and he asked him not to defile himself. And look at verse 9. This is the second time we read this. And God what? What's the verb? God gave. God gave. So the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of the king of the Babylonians. And now we have that God, the God, gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the officials. But even so, even though God gave him that favor, the chief of the officials was afraid. And what was he afraid of? He was afraid of losing his head. And he says, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. As much as I like you, Daniel, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid. I, I, I can't just go against what the king has ordered here. Now, this next move of Daniel's is very interesting. But that's, not a, that's not a flat refusal, is it? He's just saying, I'm afraid of this. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. And so it looks like there's a little crack there, isn't there? And so what does Daniel do? Daniel goes to someone else. He goes to the one who's under the chief official. He goes to the one who actually serves the food, the steward or the guardian. And this might have been with the knowledge of the chief official, or it may have been behind the back of the chief official. We don't really know. But he went to the next one down, and he proposed a test. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the officials had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and he proposed a test. Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given, it says here, vegetables to eat and water to drink. Yesterday, Robbie pointed out to me that this word vegetables is actually seeds. Give us seeds to eat and water to drink. Now, I don't know exactly what seeds would comprise, but uh, he's very far from the, the meat and the wine of the king's table. He says, give us this simple fare, seeds to eat and water to drink, and then test us. At the end of 10 days, take a look at us, see how we look, see how the others look. 
and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so this official listened to them, it says. The first one was afraid. The, the underling listened to them, and he tested them for 10 days. And that may have been advantageous for that official. Why? Because he had to take the food from the king's table, right? Or the king would be suspicious. And he had to do something with the food. Yeah, exactly, right? If Daniel and the other three guys weren't eating it, then this official had to do something with this sumptuous food that he took from the king's table. So he might have been quite content with this arrangement, maybe doing a, a switch with the simple fare that he got and uh, giving the, the rich fare, uh, taking the rich fare for himself. So at the end of 10 days, what happens? Verse 15, end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. Now, fatter in flesh may not sound like a good thing for us, but that was, that was good. That was more robust. They were, they, were, they were more buff at the end of these 10 days uh, than those who had eaten the king's food. Now, what do we understand about this? Well, it may be we don't have details about the king's food or the seed and water diet, but it may be that the diet was actually just a healthier diet. Maybe the king's diet was, was a rich, sumptuous affair, but it wasn't a healthy diet. We don't know. Uh, it may be that just this was a better diet, and that's why they look better. But we are also to understand what? We're also to understand that, that God's behind this, that he is, he is the one who is causing his people to prosper here. And he's the one that made them to be stronger and better in appearance. So what did the steward do? Verse 16, the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them seeds. So now the steward may be really happy, right? Not just 10 days. But he may get to eat the king's food uh, now for, for these three years. Good. Now, uh, the, the solution. Everything's taken care of. Things are resolved, right? Well, uh, God gives them further things as well, further blessings. As for these four youths, God did what? Gave. God gave them. Third time we've heard this. We'll hear it more. God gave uh, Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. God gave favor to Uh, Daniel before the chief official. And now we find that God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now, here we have uh, God gave to all of them some things. And then he gave to one of them the special ability with dreams and with visions. This fact sets us up for what's going to start happening in the next chapter. And much of the rest of the book has to do with dreams and visions. So, so keep that in mind, that Daniel has this special gift from the Lord. And if we've read the book of Genesis, we should also start picking up some, some similarities here between Daniel and Joseph. Joseph was serving in a pagan court, and Joseph also had this special ability to interpret dreams and visions, and we'll see this this parallel continue to develop throughout this book. So now we get to the end of the three years, verse 18. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs, chief of the officials, brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. Now, They were going to stand before the king to be tested. And now at the end of their testing, it says they stood before the king. And that just means that they were assigned a place. They they won their spot. They were given a position to stand before 
the king. Now, this is interesting. They did not refuse to learn what they were, te- they were being taught, but they refused to be indoctrinated by it. They, they actually learned it better than anyone else did. And they could discuss the Chaldean literature better than any of the other youths. They had become, for their age, experts in these areas, but they refused to give into it. They refused to be indoctrinated by it. They refused to lose their trust in the God in order to trade him away for those gods of the Babylonians. So they stood before the king, but they still were not allies of the king. They were not eating from his table They were not in fellowship with the king. They served the king, but they were also not in allegiance to the king in their hearts. So what do we have here? We have some probably some purposeful hyperbole in verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Now that also sets up the story for some things that are going to happen. What do you think? If you're one of the wise men of the kingdom and you got these four young upstart um, Judean youth and all of a sudden they're being declared to be ten times smarter and wiser than you are, how are you going to feel? Well, keep that in mind because that's going to play out in some other stories. Then we have this verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. When was that? 66 years later. 539 B.C. And why is that that leap forward included here? Looking forward 66 years, this glance forward. Well, it means this. It means that Daniel outlasted Babylon. Because Cyrus was the king who conquered Babylon. Babylon conquered Assyria, but then Babylon didn't last that long. It got conquered by the Persians. Cyrus the Persian, the king of the Persians and the Medes. So it's saying that Daniel was going to last longer than the Babylonian kingdom did. And it also prepares us for what's coming, upheaval in political affairs and faithfulness by these four men. This glance forward of 66 years prepares us for really what's going to come in the rest of the book. And it also shows us the utility of these stories for our lives. No matter what happens in the kingdoms, no matter what happens in politics, no matter who's sitting on the throne or in the presidential palace or whatever it might be, These stories are all to encourage us to remain faithful to God no matter what. As some people have told me these alarming predictions about what's going to happen in the United States, it's easy for me to get a bit anxious about that. But what I try to do is to remain calm, try to remain calm. And the reason I try to remain calm is not because I know the future any better than these people do, but because I know who holds the future. And I know that the future is not under our control, but it is under God's control. That's one of the messages of this great book. And so if that's the case, what is under our control is what we need to focus on. The future is not under our control. The, 
the clashing of kingdoms and, and empires in the world is not under our control. Who sits on the throne is not under our control. The future tomorrow is not under our control. But what is under our control is how we will, we will deal with what we're given every single day. How will we respond? How will we respond to whatever it might be that God brings into our lives? We can respond one of two ways. We can respond by caving in. We can respond by conforming. We can respond by allowing ourselves to be converted by whatever the the dominant ideologies and theories of the day might be. We can respond by being converted and indoctrinated in those things. Or we can respond like these teenagers did in their day by being faithful to the one who called us. Now, we will see something very, very soon that being faithful to the one who called us could be very, very costly. And we will find that very, very soon. That being faithful, no matter what happens around us, could be very, very costly. But that shouldn't be a surprise to us, should it? If we call ourselves Christians, because Christ was the one who was completely faithful, no matter who was sitting in the governorship or who was sitting on the throne, And what did it do for Christ, that complete faithfulness to God, no matter who was before him and what pressures were brought upon him? It landed him on a Roman cross. So let's pray. Our God, we thank you for these teenagers, teenagers who can teach us great lessons, teenagers who refuse to conform, teenagers who refuse to defile themselves, teenagers who who learn the lessons in their homes and in the synagogue of what's true and what's false, and they stuck with that, even as great pressure was brought upon them by the the greatest monarch of the day. They stood firm, Lord, and we thank you for their example, which reminds us of the one who did stand firm, no matter what pressure was brought upon him by the religious and the political powers of his day. We thank you for Jesus, who is the one who is completely faithful to you, and we rest in his faithfulness, and we find in him our salvation because of that faithfulness. Lord, we pray that we, too, whatever is brought upon us in our individual lives or in our country or wherever we might be, that you enable us to believe in the God and to be faithful to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.